David Schuster. A lot of us are all too familiar with what social media has done to journalism, politics, public policy, like how to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. But there's a terrific new book out on what social media and the internet have done to history. It is by Jason Steinhauser. He's an author, global fellow at the Wilson Center. The name of his book is History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. Uh, this book has become a number one bestseller on Amazon rave reviews, and this is an academic book, which makes it even more amazing. Jason, good of you to join us. First of all, what prompted you to do this book? Well, actually, it's exactly what you just said. There have been so many studies and conversations about how social media has affected our politics, affected journalism, affected public health, but no one had really looked at or analyzed how social media and the web have changed history and changed what we know about the past. And so. The more I looked into it, the more I realized that there was an important book here to write. And it sounds like the more you looked into it, the more troubling it became. Yeah, one of the things I learned as I researched this book is that even though we have so much history in the public domain on social media and in the news media and on the web, it actually isn't improving our understanding of history all that much. In fact, what it's doing, I argue in the book, is just embedding the values of the social web deeper into our lives. So that would tend to a lot of people to suggest that things become much more abbreviated, simplified, uh, and perhaps um, things that are false, conspiracy theories, then get embedded and become a place where people can go and say, aha, well, of course, Pearl Harbor was a false flag because I found it here on the web. Yeah, the book does talk about misinformation and disinformation. That's an aspect of the book, but the book is really set up to be this contrast in values. And one of the things I write in the book is that history is uh, the professional discipline of history, the practice of history is a, is a very time consuming, labor intensive, always evolving intellectual endeavor. And so to communicate history online involves taking that endeavor and transposing it into a social web, which promises to be instantly gratifying, to give you answers right away, which is largely user centric as opposed to expert centric. And so this creates a lot of challenges for communicating history, particularly professional history. And as I argue in the book, what it does is it ultimately changes what we think about history because it shifts it from being something that is expert centric to user centric, something that is always evolving to something that is instantly gratifying. And that is one of the outcomes of all this that I think has been understudied and underappreciated. A lot of us who are familiar with the academic world understand that there's a certain peer review process. And if you publish a book in political science or history, there are other history experts who are there to weigh in on the strengths and weaknesses of the argument. But it sounds like in this particular case now, well, that is sort of being torn apart. Yeah, and listen, I'm not a nostalgic for the old days of academia where only people like me were allowed to participate in the creation of new knowledge. I think some of the gatekeeping has rightfully come down and allowed more diverse voices into the conversation. But on the flip side of that, those mechanisms also allow nefarious actors and people with you know, maybe not the most honest agendas to introduce historical narratives into the conversation and to crowdsource them into becoming popularized and to becoming accepted. And I talk about this in the book that you know, crowdsourcing has its positives, but it also has its negatives. And there are many aspects and many instances where far right nationalist groups or disinformation agents have crowdsourced history into the public sphere. And it's sort of taken on a life of its own and become accepted as truth. That shape of history and given the crowdsourcing and far right groups that you mentioned, is it predominantly or is it clearly involving say memories of fascism or Nazism in World War II and sort of what was happening then and what people understand it now? 
You know, it's really interesting because the more I looked at this, the more I saw these patterns happening across platforms and across different subject matters. So it's not just one or two issues that maybe stand out at the top of our minds, right? This is a repeated mechanism by which hostile actors or people with nefarious agendas crowdsource information on various platforms about history and then eventually it bubbles up into our news feeds. And because it's resting alongside all this other information by academics and journalists and others, it's really hard for the average consumer to distinguish one from the other. And so it it ends up being much more confusing than anything else, which is why I argue at the end of the book that actually we're not really improving understanding of history at all through this environment. In fact, we may be even making it worse. Jason, give us one of your favorite examples from the book in terms of this stuff bubbling up into the mainstream, into news feeds that was essentially crowdsourced and maybe incorrect. Well, one of the things I talk about in the books, I talk about Wikipedia and I talk about the crowdsource pass and how that works. And what was interesting about Wikipedia is I actually found an example where crowdsourcing actually prevented truthful information or accurate information from entering the public sphere. There was a historian who was an expert on the Haymarket riot in 1886 in Chicago. And he tried to update the Wikipedia page to include his scholarship and the crowd told him no, he couldn't update it because his singular voice should not overrule the voice of the crowd. So we oftentimes think about crowdsourcing and the way that it bubbles up information into our feeds, but also crowdsourcing can have the opposite effect. It can keep factual information from ever reaching our eyes. That was kind of a surprising story for me. And I think it's not something we always think about when we think about these mechanisms that the web has engendered. So what did this historian about the Haymarket riot in 1896, what did he, what did he do to, to deal with this? Well, he actually tried three times to update his Wikipedia page, the the Wikipedia page, and was rejected all three times under the same logic. And eventually he wrote an op-ed about this, which was published, uh, I believe in the Chronicle of Higher Education or Inside Higher Ed. And eventually over time, I think he was able to make improvements to the page as his scholarship became more widely known and widely accepted. But it sort of points to this idea of how the crowdsourcing mechanisms can have positive effects, but they can also have negative effects. They can raise disinformation to our eyes, but they can also prevent factual information from ever reaching our eyes. I also wonder if it gets to in the world of political science, um, there's this whole sort of uh, theory that, well, you know, things happen not just because of individual actors, but because of institutions and culture. And yet on the internet, social media is so much sort of celebrity driven, it's individual driven. And to me, it suggests that maybe that as people are sort of changing history, they're looking more at the celebrities in history and discounting some of the things that in the past have been crucial in terms of institutional factors that weigh in and contribute to how history is shaped. Yeah, what's interesting is one of the things I look at in the book is I look at the incentives for creating content online and how those incentives create and reward different types of historical information, right? And one of the incentives I take a hard look at is this incentive of virality. The ability to send something viral through networks and how we reward that with fame, with attention, with money, with book contracts. And what that does in the case of history is it incentivizes people to find ways to send history content viral through networks, even if that content isn't accurate. And I look at the example of History and Picks, which is this viral history account that has about 4 million followers on Twitter. And basically what they did is they devised a formula to send history content viral through networks. And that virality got them fame and attention and public acclaim, got them written up in all kinds of media organizations. But there was a lot of problems with the accuracy of that account. And meanwhile, to your point, as you're saying, you know, there are scholars and academics who are doing laborious work in the archives and producing historical content every year that is accurate and fact-based and rigorously researched. 
And that content never sees the light of day because the incentives on social media don't reward it. There's been an argument from the crowdsourcing groups that uh, historians have tended to be biased, have tended to be of a certain uh, gender and racial persuasion. And therefore, maybe it's a good thing that there's more crowdsourcing in terms of understanding history. What's the, what's the response? Well, listen, I think diversity is crucial to telling a story of the past, whether it be the American past or any past. And so the more voices and the more diverse voices that can be at the table in a production of historical knowledge, I think that's a good thing. And I appreciate the calls for diversity. And I think it's great that the history profession is looking less and less like me and more and more like a diverse group of people that this country represents. On the flip side of that, what you get though, is you get this distrust in institutions that you've talked about. And throughout the book, I did a lot of research and heard from a lot of people about how people do not trust academia. They do not trust traditional historical institutions. And a lot of that has been engendered by the web. So we have to find a balance where we can still have trust in our institutions and trust in those who do this type of evidence-based research that is time consuming and laborious to produce. And that produces what we believe to be accurate representations of the past while still making the seat at the table big enough so that everyone can participate in the process and lots of diverse voices can be heard. So given the challenges now, what is the answer? What is the solution to finding that balance in order to both protect the more voices who wanna be part of you know, the, the narration of history, but also protecting the academic rigor and expertise of people who are doing the laborious work? Yeah, well, these are really challenging questions that I grapple with in the book. I don't have all the answers, but one of my suggestions is I've actually created something called the History Communication Institute. And I envision this institute being a forum where we can have these types of conversations and bring diverse stakeholders to the table to confront these issues. Because there are a lot of headwinds facing professional history. As you've probably heard, history enrollments have been plummeting. People taking history classes have been plummeting. Historians jobs are being cut left and right. And a lot of that has been engendered by the web and the forces that the web has unleashed. So what I wanna do through the History Communication Institute is use the ideas in the book as a leaping off point to talk about how we can diversify the stories and the profession and also adapt to the changing communications environment that we're in. Even though fewer people are supposed are taking history classes, it does seem there's something here given just how successful your book has been. I mean, people care about history. Were you surprised by the response and, and what do you attribute it to? Other than great writing and great research and all that that you've done, but just the, the, the genre seems to have really grabbed people. Well, I think that this book touches on a number of subjects that people care about. It touches on social media and the web, which obviously is playing a huge role in our lives. It's touching on politics and activism and disinformation, all of which are crucial issues right now. And to your point, I think there are actually a lot of people who care about history and find history interesting. They maybe just haven't enjoyed the way history has been taught or communicated in the past, which is some of the reason why this e-history online succeeds. So I think my book has touched into a touched into a lot of these things. And maybe this can be the beginning of a new phase in history communication that gets more people excited about studying the past. Well, the reviews are simply a terrific. A history disrupted how social media and the World Wide Web have changed the past. It was written by Jason Steinhauser, an author and global fellow at the Wilson Center. Jason, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it and good to have you on. Thank you guys so much for having me.
a computer engineer for Congress. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the conversation. The first primary of the 2022 cycle starts on next week, March the 1st. Texas has its primary, and there are two additional congressional seats in Texas as a result of the census. There's a brand new district for what is known as Texas's 37th congressional district, and there's a couple of fascinating candidates. There is Lloyd Doggett, who was the incumbent in the 35th congressional district. That district has changed, and he's being challenged by Donna Iman. She is um, not a politician, she is an engineer who says that she solves large scale problems. She was also endorsed in her last congressional run two years ago by Bernie Sanders. Donna, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, I really, really appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about this race, it's next week, how you doing? I'm doing great, you know, we are you know, executing on the program that we wanted to, which is taking our message directly to the voters. And uh, we're hopefully getting the job done. We're working every single day around the clock, and uh, it's a tough race, but I think we're going to get there. You're a, you're a, you're a tried and true progressive, as I said, endorsed by Bernie Sanders when you ran in 2020. You support healthcare for all, education for all, immigration reform, pathway to citizenship. What would be the priority out of all of this if you get elected? Well, the biggest challenge here in Austin, Texas, is we just became the 11th largest city in the entire country. And the cost of living is a huge challenge. It's driving out people on fixed incomes, people like school teachers, social workers, people who work in the nonprofit sector that have worked their entire lives, you know, done everything correctly, and now are unable to, you know, afford to live in what was one of the most affordable cities in the entire country. So my highest priority, because Texas has the most number of people without any health insurance and the most number of people without any health care. And the reason I make that distinction, as you know, is having health insurance doesn't guarantee that you'll be able to see a doctor. So my number one priority, if I get to Congress, is to lower the cost of health care with single payer Medicare for all. And I have some very specific solutions that would actually accelerate that and, and bring it to the American people and cover every single person in our country. And that is the biggest part of my platform, my number one priority. But my number two priority goes right along with it, which is the cost of education. You know, over the last several decades, the cost of education has gone up 3,000%. This is a huge problem, not just for our next generation, for but for the, you know, uh, our, our entire country's uh, viability and, and the ability to stay on the cutting edge of technology and leadership in this entire world. As I said, Lloyd Doggett, who is the congressman for the 35th Congressional District, he's been in Congress since the 1990s. Um, he seemed to support Medicare for all recently, but it also appeared that he was at first sort of reluctant. Is the argument that he's not a true progressive, that he's not progressive enough? I think uh, the American people are looking at uh, you know, those two big things that I talked about, the cost of healthcare and the cost of education. And they're looking at Congress right now and saying, look, the Build Back Better bill, right, was gutted, not just before it went to the Senate, in the House. They took out two year to, you know, tuition free community college. They removed the ability to negotiate prescription drugs, which is one of the most popular things in the entire country. Child tax credits, axed, boom completely gone, right? And some of these were done in the House, not in the Senate. This argument that we can't get things done because we have two senators that are holding up 
our entire agenda for the American people, the bottom 50% of the American people, Democrats that came out in 2020, they did it with you know the hopes that with a majority in the House, even with a slim majority in, in the Senate and with the White House, that these basic economic challenges that Americans are facing would be addressed. They're not. What I believe is we need people in Congress that have the competency to organize Congress, bring people on board with data and facts and figure out strategically how to bring the Senate on board with the agenda for the American people. Now, I have a background in technology, as you know, in the Austin tech industry, 18 year career bringing very, very successful products to market. And I wanna take my experience and expertise to Congress and ensure that we deliver for the American people. A lot of those members, I was gonna say, a lot of those members of Congress though do not have that sort of background and, and would not perhaps have the same sort of level of understanding to be charitable about data and even sometimes basic facts. Does it make it more difficult? Make it more difficult as in? Well, I mean, you're dealing, you, if, if elected, you'd be dealing with a lot of members of Congress who aren't necessarily computer engineers and some of them who don't seem to, you know, at least particularly Republicans, don't seem to value data and education and academic success. So, and, and that may reflect sort of society as a whole right now. Ah, yes, I see what you're saying now. Um, I think the American people are some of the smartest people in the entire world. We need to take our agenda, our data and our solutions directly to the American people and let the American people put the pressure on Congress to get things done. Right now, I believe one of the biggest challenges in mainstream media is that we are not bringing the facts and data. For example, how many times have you heard that we are actually overpaying for healthcare by almost $2 trillion annually? Do we hear that on you know our mainstream media on a daily basis, right? While leaving out millions of people, we need to bring this message to the American people. How many times do we hear that we have a lack of primary care physicians in our country? That we have over 90,000 physicians that were trained and educated outside of the United States that are trying to fill that gap right now. So these are the some of the challenges that we have to address. I have a really great solution for all of these, scaling the healthcare infrastructure with more physicians and more nurses, thus lowering the cost of healthcare. And that is the message we need to bring to the American people. I think that we can get this done. I'm hopeful, that's why I'm working here to get our message to Texans. You took a message to Texans back in 2020. You were the Democratic nominee for the 31st Congressional District. What'd you learn from that campaign? Well, I don't know if you know this, but not only did we have the highest voter turnout in the history of the district, we came in number one in Williamson County, that is Northwest Austin and its suburbs in all of Texas. Number one in voter turnout among the top 25 most populated counties. You don't come you know, you don't come in number one by chance. You do it because you did the work. And the way we did it is we took our message to 50,000 doors in suburbia. Now, if you live in Texas, you know that the homes are huge and they're sometimes 75 to 100 feet apart each. So getting that accomplished is a huge deal. What we learned is if you can take your message and the message is accurate, which we believe we have the right message for the American people, then you can absolutely get out the vote. And that's how you win Texas. That's how we take back Texas. And when you compete in a brand new congressional district as this one is, um, the 37th congressional district, are there additional challenges? Because you're essentially over, you know, part of the part of it was in the 31st district, part of it was in the 31st. You've got this sort of new boundaries. Uh, what does that do in terms of just the political strategy? 
It's a it's a huge uphill battle. In fact, uh, one of the challenges with this district, it is actually gerrymandered heavily blue, which means it's called what's known as a sink district. They take all the Democrats, uh, and you know there's a lot of them in Austin, Texas, and they pack them all into one district, which means in the primary election, it is a, a real difficulty in reaching so many Democrats with a so little budget. And you know, I'm running a grassroots campaign, 100% of every single contribution to my campaign in this election came from individual small contributors, right? So this is a very difficult task in how to use a very small amount of budget and reach you know, over 100,000 Democrats that have voted in a Democratic primary. The headwinds, at least nationally, seem to be against Democrats. A lot of indications that if the election were held, the midterm general election were held today, Democrats would probably lose the House, probably lose the Senate. Given all of that, does it make it more difficult to try to sell progressive ideas as opposed to doing what a lot of establishment Democrats want the candidates to do, and that is pivot back towards the center? No, actually our message every single time, it doesn't matter who they are, where on the spectrum they are, regardless of whether you know <laughs> they're in the center, left, right. When I tell people we're being price gouged for healthcare, everybody agrees because everybody has seen their hospital bills, their emergency room bills and their doctor's bills, right? They can see it doesn't make absolutely sense what we're paying. They can see that we are paying sometimes 10 times more for the same prescription drug as sold anywhere else in the world that we're subsidizing the entire world's pharmaceuticals. And the American people need to know that the majority of this pharmaceutical research and development was done with public money in universities with funds that were you know, available because of the working people of the United States. It's the wealth that we created that funded all this research and development. And it is absolutely necessary that we are able to negotiate these prices down to what they should be. So we're having no issues here. Our message is on point, voters love our message. We just need to get it to them and that's the toughest part. If we can get our message to voters, I'm 100% confident that we've got this. One of the main news stories right now as we head into the March 1st primary is a foreign policy challenge. And that is Russia's invasion of part of the Ukraine. They're occupying two regions in Eastern Ukraine. Do you have a sense about how the Biden administration is doing? Should the Biden administration be doing anything differently? Well, we should be exploring every single diplomatic effort that is absolutely possible before we make any decision on this. And we should ensure that we use every peaceful method uh, you know, economic incentives to solve this challenge that we're seeing there. Uh, I don't have all the details of what they're doing right now. Uh, it seems a little bit murky, but what I would be very clear about is that the United States and we as Americans absolutely should not engage in any kind of uh, conflict there unless uh, it is very specific and it is uh, specifically around economic incentives to do it diplomatically, to solve it diplomatically. I'm an anti-war candidate and I do not support any kind of conflict that we go in as as the United States. Finally, Donna, are there any other computer engineers that serve in Congress right now that you know of? 
Um, I, you know, I think there may be a one or two electrical engineers, uh, you know, uh, in uh, in Congress, um, especially on the yeah, and maybe on the GOP side. I'm not aware of an electrical and computer engineer with my background in Congress right now. Uh, there, well, there very well could be, but if you know anybody, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that a lot of folks in West Lafayette, Indiana, the um, Purdue University where you went to school, will be very proud to see you. Good luck in your race next week. The primary is March the first. This is Donna Imam. She is the uh, one of the Democrats running in the primary for Texas's 37th congressional district. The primary is March the 1st. Here are some contacts for how you can help out Donna if you want to. Donna, good of you to join us, thank you. Thank you so much, I really appreciate you having me on. You got it, and that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and Craig Lowry, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching. <laughs>